All right. Good morning once again. It's good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18? And as always, we'd like to welcome the new folks. Good to see you. And uh, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As I mentioned, we just entered into chapter 18 last week. And let's just review quickly. At this point in John's Gospel, it's probably just after midnight. And Jesus has led his 11 11 remaining disciples. Remember now, Judas left earlier in the evening to finish carrying out his betrayal of Jesus. And so now Jesus takes his 11 remaining disciples and uh, takes them to the Mount of Olives to a particular garden located on that mount called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Jesus would often retreat to this garden after a long day of ministry in Jerusalem to spend time with his Father in prayer, sometimes spending all night in prayer. And um, as I said, the Garden of Gethsemane is located on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley, a little more than a half a mile from Jerusalem. And um, as we said last time, the wealthy people of Jerusalem had gardens on the Mount of Olives. Why on the Mount of Olives? Well, primarily because they couldn't have gardens in Jerusalem because the city fathers had an ordinance. There's always an ordinance where you couldn't use fertilizer within the walls of the city. So the wealthy went that half a mile to the Mount of Olives and enjoyed gardens uh, there. And um, remember that, as we said last time, these were all gated and locked gardens. These were private gardens. So how did Jesus and his disciples uh, get in? Well, he probably knew the owner. In fact, the owner was probably one of his disciples, knew how Jesus loved to spend time in that garden, you know, uh, after a long day of ministry, probably gave the Lord a key. And um, they just came and went as they pleased, Jesus and his disciples. And um, it's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, you hear the word garden, and we in the West immediately think of, you know, causes a picture in our minds, um, something along the lines of an English garden, place with beautiful flowers everywhere, that kind of thing, okay? But uh, it really wasn't that kind of garden. The Garden of Gethsemane was an olive orchard an olive orchard. In fact, Gethsemane means oil press because it was the place where olives were crushed and pressed to release their oil. Some of that oil was used in the menorah of the temple to give light. Remember, everything pointed to Jesus. He is the light of the world. And so he came to give light. And uh, when he was crushed, eventually the Holy Spirit was poured out, likened to oil in the scriptures delight the world with the gospel and those who are saved and are serving God. So it was a fitting place, though, for Jesus to spend his final hours before being arrested because, well, he would endure a crushing of sorts that morning. I say morning because it was just probably after midnight. But uh, the crushing, the pressing, and the subsequent agony that Jesus endured in Gethsemane that he was about to feel when the weight of humanity's sins were going to be laid upon him in a few hours when he hung on the cross. I think it so far exceeds anything we could even begin to imagine that it's rendered incomprehensible to our human minds. So 
John 18, verse 1, and we're still reviewing a little from last time. So when Jesus had spoken these words, probably John 17, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, last week I made it a point to say to you how that John's gospel is unique from the other three. They're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, which basically the word means similar. They focus on Jesus' Galilean ministry and his public teachings, whereas John's gospel is unique in that it focuses on Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples. Half of John's gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, and half of that to the final 12 hours of his life before the cross. And we made it a point to say that that gives us insight. John's gospel is into the final hours of Jesus' life. We just don't see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John gives us details that is amazing. And, and, and details like, you know, the final teaching of Jesus before the cross. That's chapters 13 through 16. That only appears in John's gospel. Uh, his high priestly prayer, John 17, only appears in John's gospel. So John gives us insight, uh, insights into Jesus' final hours we don't get from the other gospels. But there's always an exception to every rule. And here's the exception. When you enter into John 18, John doesn't give us more detail than the other gospels do uh, with regard to what happened in the garden. Now, there was something that happened in the garden that John completely skips over, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover. And uh, something that I, I think is very important to the narrative that took place in the garden before Jesus was betrayed and arrested. So, as I said last week, I, I want to divide the first 12 verses of John's gospel into two main parts. The first one doesn't even come out of John's gospel. Now, if you've ever taken a class in homiletics, which is the proper way to put together Bible sermons and messages, you always make sure your main points come out of the text. Don't tell my homiletics teacher. I think he's retired now. Uh, but I'm going to violate that today. Because we want to get a fuller picture of what went on. John skips over something very important. So turn to Matthew 26. We'll pick it up from Matthew's Gospel. I've divided this. Uh, into two main parts, Jesus' agony in the garden, and then Jesus' arrest in the garden. So the first one, uh, Jesus' agony in the garden, comes out of Matthew 26. Mark and Luke also, but I'm going to take you to Matthew. And let's pick it up in verse 36. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus came with them, with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He said that to Peter, James, and John. Again, they came to the garden. But Jesus left eight of his disciples there at the entrance and took Peter, James, and John into the garden to keep him company while he prayed in his humanity. He needed some support. 
some, some comfort. Those to, his closest guys to be there with him. Uh, that was in his humanity something he really desired. So verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That last statement we spent a little time on last week developing. So if you weren't here, you can go online and listen to last week's study. But uh, the beginning of verse 41, I want to just key in for a second. Again, we're reviewing. But Jesus said, watch, which, which basically he's saying, stay awake and alert and pray. The idea is constantly, constantly, lest you enter into temptation. And guys, again, this admonition by the Lord Jesus Christ is no less relevant and vital today as it was when he first gave it to his disciples in the garden 2,000 years ago. We know Satan is going to bring temptation our way at some point in our day, probably at multiple points during the day. It's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's when. So it's coming. Therefore, we need to expect it, be on guard against it, and purpose in our hearts how we're going to handle it. Look, as we said last week, the time to be on guard against temptation is before it comes knocking. If you wait until it comes knocking and then try to resist it, you're probably going to fall to it. We have to be aware. The devil wants to bring all of us down. The devil wants to neutralize our ministries, destroy our marriages, just do, you know, neutralize our walk and our witness in some way, shape, or form. A very victorious believer is one who anticipates temptation is coming and again expects it is on guard against it and most importantly um, is purposed already in their heart how they're going to handle it once it comes knocking so if you weren't here last week we again developed that though you can go online and listen to that message i think that's an important subject uh, with regard to temptation. And by the way, temptation is not a sin. The devil convinces some Christians that temptation is a sin. It's giving in to the temptation. Okay? Guys, it's not a sin. A pretty girl walks through, past your line of sight. It is a sin if you gawk and take that in. All right? Pretty girl walks across your path and, you know, maybe she's not wearing the best stuff for a godly man. You look away. That is not temp that is temptation is not sin, all right. So don't the devil nail you with that as if you know the very temptation itself is sin. It isn't. All right, Matthew twenty six verse forty two. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, "O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done." And as we said last week, this cup is a reference to the cup of God's wrath. The cup that was poured out full strength on Jesus when he hung on the cross and paid for our sins by dying in our place. And guys, this should forever communicate to us 
how much God hates sin but loves the sinner. God is of pure eyes than to look upon sin in a favorable way. God cannot have fellowship with sin. In him there is no sin. In God there is no uh, darkness at all. He is only light. Purity, holiness, perfection. Right? And God could not just sweep our sins under the rug and pretend they didn't exist. God can't do We do that. We do that. We tend not to deal with sin in our lives. We want to sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. God doesn't do that. He can't do that. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be paid for. But God loved us so much, right? John 3, 16. He didn't want us paying for our sins in hell for all eternity. Therefore, he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to suffer in hell for all of eternity, but would have everlasting life with God in heaven. God hates sin. He loves the sinner. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad your life has been lived. Not that I'm saying it's no big deal. I'm not. I'm just saying, though, that no sin is so great that the grace of God is not greater still to forgive. I have heard true stories of mafia hitmen, one guy with over 300 kills to his credit, who got saved. You think, well, could a guy like that ever get saved? Of course he could. Because, again, God can forgive any sin if the person is broken, repents, comes to, to God confessing that sin and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. But I know, Jesus, you died for sinners. You died for me. And right now I want to turn control of my life over to you. I want you to come in and rescue me. Take over. Be my king. Lead my life. At that instant, the Bible says you become a brand new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything's brand new. Got a clean slate. So understand that. The devil will try to tell you that your sin is so great, God wants nothing to do with you. But that's not what the Bible tells us. So if you're thinking that you're too far gone and God couldn't save me, I got news for you. God can save anyone. And sometimes God will go out of his way to save the worst of us to show the rest of us. Nobody is beyond his grace. No sin is so great God can't forgive. Amen? So the first time Jesus prayed to his father in verse 39, he said, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The second time he uh, petitions the Father, he said, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, guys, oftentimes Christians will read this and think that Jesus is trying to get out of the cross. Jesus just, in his humanity, was scared and wanted out. But before you think Jesus was trying to escape the cross, remember what he said earlier in his ministry in John 12. He said, I'm thinking of verses 27 and 8 primarily, Now my soul is troubled. The cross was looming. It was getting closer. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Save me from the cross? He said, no. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This is the mission of for which I came from heaven to the earth. 
This is my hour, not a 60-minute, of course, period of time, but a moment in history. This was why Jesus came. He was not trying to escape the cross. He went on to say, Father, glorify your name. Let's, let's see this through. Again, guys, Jesus wasn't trying to get out of his mission to bring salvation to the people of this world. So, you, so what was going on here, you say? What was all this, let this cup pass from me stuff? If he wasn't trying to get out of the cross. Well, listen to me. I believe in his humanity, Jesus was praying, listen, a rhetorical prayer. Not a literal prayer, a rhetorical. We've all heard of rhetorical questions. We've all asked rhetorical questions. What is a rhetorical question? It's a question you already know the answer to. You're not looking for an answer. You already know the answer, then why ask the question at all? Because, for emphasis, that there is no other way, or something that's obvious needs to be stated, even though it's obvious. Jesus Christ knew there was no other way for people to get saved except by him going to the cross. He said it earlier in the evening in John 14. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew there was no other way for people to be saved. So I believe he prayed a rhetorical prayer that we would all come to read and understand. Father, if there's any other way for people to get saved than by me going to the cross, let's go that way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What, what happened? What was next? Did the Father say a word? There was absolute silence. Because there was no other way, and Jesus knew that. And he wanted all of us to understand that as well. There is no... And, this is the thing. Uh, so many people think that Jesus is a way to heaven. But so is Buddha, so is Confucius, so is Muhammad, so is Zoroastrus or, or whoever else. We know Jesus said there is only one way. That is the way of the cross. That is the way of Christ. And there is no other way to get to heaven except through Jesus. And if the Father, if there was any other way for people to be saved, except or other than Jesus going to the cross, it meant that the Father turned a deaf ear to the prayer of the Son that night in the garden and let him die needlessly, sent him to a needless death. And that, folks, is incomprehensible. He is the only way. Matthew 26, verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying, a third time, saying the same words. Now, guys, at this point, Luke's gospel gives us some more detail into what happened next. You might want to turn to it, Luke 22. And while you're turning there, remember that Luke was a physician. And as a physician, he focuses more on Jesus' humanity than any other gospel writer does, especially on the physical suffering Jesus endured in the garden that night and then on the cross a few hours later. So let's look at Luke 22. 
Starting with verse 42, again, Jesus is praying to his Father in the garden. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, and this is where that first point comes from, Jesus' agony in the garden. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Dr. Luke is the only gospel writer who mentions how Jesus began to sweat and that his sweat was like great drops of blood which fell to the ground as he prayed. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, there is a rare physical phenomenon known as hematidrosis, in which the tiny capillary blood vessels just below the surface of the skin that feed the sweat glands. Sometimes under extreme duress, they can rupture. They can rupture, causing them to ex exude blood, which, of course, under that kind of duress and pressure, the person is no doubt by this time sweating profusely. And so when these little capillaries expand under pressure, blood pressure is probably around 200 or so, they burst. And they begin to mix with the sweat, and it looks like great drops of blood are falling to the ground. It's a mixture of sweat and blood. And I believe that's what was going on here. Doctors tell us that this phenomenon can occur under conditions of extreme physical and or emotional stress. Again, I believe that's what's going on here. Guys, we cannot even imagine the horror. Christians say, wow, Jesus was really scared about going to the cross. I'm not saying he was looking forward to the pain of the cross. But I don't believe that's what he was really what he was really horrified about. We'll talk about that more in a second. We cannot even imagine the horror that Jesus must have felt that morning as the absolutely sinless and holy Son of God was about to become sin for us when he hung on that cross, right? Now, can I correct a faulty conception that a lot of Christians have? When the Bible says Jesus became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? Many Christians read that and go, he turned into sin. That is absolutely incorrect. God cannot turn into sin. God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. God is sinless. So what's going on here? Jesus didn't turn into sin he became our offering for sin. He became the substitute. Just like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament didn't turn into sin when they were offered for the sins of the Jewish people. They had the sins of those people laid on them, and then they were killed in their place. Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, died in our place. He became our substitute. Sinless, holy, Lamb of God. Upon him was laid all the sins of humanity from the Garden of Eden until the culmination. They were all laid upon Christ who suffered for them all. 
And one of the things I believe Jesus was so terrified of was that for that moment in history, when he hung on the cross, the father turned his face from the son, causing him to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is of pure eyes than to look upon sin. What is it like to have one God in three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that from eternity past were always in complete unity with each other to have one person ripped away from that fellowship for six hours when he hung on Calvary's cross? We can't even begin to comprehend that. I know I can't. I think that was one of the things that was weighing heavy on his heart and mind that morning. But again, he became our substitute. He was a willing sacrifice who died in our place that we might be saved, right? But again, I want you to notice that he was not asking to escape the cross. He was praying that the fathers will be done. It is impossible for you and me, I think, to enter into the full significance of Gethsemane. But I think, listen now, I think it was there that he won the victory of Calvary. The victory came, guys, in the surrendering of his will to the Father. When we surrender our will to God, victory will be ours. It's only when we're going our own way and doing our own thing that we get into trouble. That's when we fall. That's when we are defeated. When you surrender your will to God, victory will be yours. But woe unto those who strive with their maker. Right? Isaiah 45, verse 9. Striving with your maker is the opposite of surrendering your will to God. It's wanting to stay in control. It's wanting to stay in the driver's seat. It's wanting, even though you may give God lip service, it's still wanting to be in control. Now here's the thing with that. God could say to every one of us, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way. What's the easy way? You fall on your face immediately and bow, your, bow the knee to Jesus and receive him as your Savior. The hard way, you do your own thing, you strive against your maker, and God lets you go out into the world and get the snot kicked out of you by the devil. And you crawl back bloody and wounded and say, okay, I'm ready. One pastor said his grandfather was a pastor, his dad was a pastor, and he felt the call of God to be a pastor, but he didn't want to be a pastor. He fought it. True story. So one day he's in the car, driving down the highway, gets in an accident, he's ejected from the car, and goes sliding down the expressway. So I didn't even change lanes. Sliding down the expressway on his backside, <laughs> tore his whole backside up, he crawled over to the side of the road, still conscious, and said, God, I surrender. I can't fight against this kind of, you know, this, this kind of pressure. Well, God forced him. Let's put it this way. You have a free will, but God can make it so unpleasant to exercise your free will 
You just give him. And he does it because he loves you. He's got a plan for your life, right? Um, where was I? Uh, okay, um, let me just say it again. That the victory of Calvary came in Gethsemane. I believe that. We'll talk about that more in a second. But it, it came in, the, in Jesus surrendering his will to the Father. And uh, in fact, the key word that sums up this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane is surrender. It, excuse me, is the word surrender, okay? Jesus surrendered his will to his Father. He said, not what I will, Father, but your will be done. And guys, this is the essence, the heart and soul of the Christian life, whether you know it or not. Surrendering our will to God. Look, all Christians want the power of God in their lives, right? What Christian do you know walks around going, no, I don't want any power. I just want to be a weak, defeated loser Christian. I like that. No, come on. Nobody wants that. All Christians want the power of God in their lives. But we need to realize that before Jesus rose in power, he first had to die on Calvary. And before he died on Calvary, he first had to experience Gethsemane, the surrendering of his will to the Father. Guys, surrender leads to the death of self, which results in the resurrection power of God being poured out upon our lives. And guys, this in a nutshell, I think, is the problem with too many Christians today. They want blessings but not sufferings. They reject the cross but still want the crown. They forget that Crucifixion Friday precedes Resurrection Sunday. You know, Hebrews chapter 5 gives us more insight into Jesus' prayer in the garden that morning. Why don't you turn there? Hebrews 5. I'm just trying to piece together various passages to give you a fuller understanding of what happened early that morning in the garden as Jesus prayed to his Father. And for this, I want to take you now to Hebrews 5. Let's pick it up in verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, in his humanity, when he was on the earth, physical body, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. This was in the Garden of Gethsemane now. We don't need... We don't see this from the Gospels, that Jesus Christ was, was sobbing, he was weeping. In the days he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, uh, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all obey him. I want you to focus on for a second on verse 7. It says that Jesus, after he offered a prayer, supplications with vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, was heard. Was heard because of his godly fear. The writer of the Hebrew states that Jesus' prayer was heard, which implies it was answered by the Father. And yet, since he did die on the cross, this could not have been what he was praying about. For if the Father had answered that prayer, 
Jesus would not have been crucified if that was really what he was asking his father for to keep him from going to the cross. But as we said earlier, before we think that Jesus was trying to escape the cross, let's not forget what he said earlier in John's Gospel. Look, the cross is looming. I feel it. I'm burdened in my spirit, my soul. But what should I pray? Talking to his disciples. Father, deliver me from this hour. For this hour I came into the world, and I'm going to see this through that my Father is glorified. That's what he said to his disciples. Guys, the only way for us to interpret Jesus' prayer in the garden that morning and how his Father did in fact answer it was that this prayer, listen, was not to escape the cross. It was a prayer to escape the grave. In other words, Jesus prayed that his father would not leave his soul, Jesus' soul in Hades, after he died on the cross. It was a prayer that the father would raise Jesus from the dead. And that was the prayer that the father answered, that he would not leave Jesus' soul in Hades, but would raise him from the dead, listen, before physical decay began to set in. The Jewish people believed that the body began to decay after death the fourth day. When did Jesus, was Jesus raised from the dead? On the third day. There was something that happened in that garden after Jesus prayed this prayer that we don't see in the Gospels. Somehow the Father answered the Son and gave his son great joy and encouragement. Turn to Psalm 16. This is a prayer, a psalm of Jesus. Jesus is speaking here through David. He said in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. The Father assured the son he wasn't going to leave his soul in Hades. My glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope, rest in the grave. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see decay, corruption. Now listen, guys, we read in Hebrews 5 that Jesus' prayer was heard because of his, verse 7, godly fear. The Greek word carries with the idea of being devoutly submissive. That, that's really what I want to key in on. How Jesus won the victory in Gethsemane through surrender. The same way we win the victory in our lives. He was heard because of his godly fear. The Greek is because of his devout submission. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now be careful that you don't interpret this to mean that Jesus learned to stop disobeying the Father and learned obedience. No, no. This speaks of him growing into greater obedience than at any point in his physical life. He grew in grace and in the knowledge of his Father, right? He grew. He never disobeyed the Father at any time. That would have been sin, and that would have blown his mission, right? He said, I do always those things that please my Father. 
So it wasn't that he had to stop learning to be disobedient and start learning to get with it and be obedient. No, he was always obedient and the test became stronger and greater until now we are at the ultimate test of his obedience to cross. He grew into greater obedience than he ever knew before the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross. Jesus learned obedience the same way we do through our life experiences. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, We must remember that our Lord in his earthly walk lived by faith in his Father's will. As God, he needed to learn nothing. But as the Son of God come in human flesh, he had to experience that which his people would experience so that he might be able to minister to them as their faithful high priest. He did not need to learn how to obey because it would be impossible for God to be disobedient. Rather, as the God-man in human flesh, he had to learn what was involved in obedience. In this way, he identified with us, end quote. Do you understand, right? The thing we need to understand is that even as our Lord Jesus himself had to learn obedience through the things he suffered, listen, so must we. That's the only reason God puts us through sufferings. That we will learn to be more submissive, trust him more, be more obedient. Obedience, guys, is the only way God can really lead us, bless us, and ultimately use us. And he's all about wanting us to have an abundant entry into the kingdom of heaven and that comes through our obedience to him on earth and doing his will and uh, the work he's called us to he wants all of us to have a greater entrance into heaven in the way of eternal blessings and if he has to sacrifice a little earthly comfort to give us a more glorious eternity he will do that but it's all about teaching us now listen there is only one thing that stands in the way of a fully surrendered obedient life you know what it is? Self. I saw some of you guys pointing to your wife. Don't do that. She's not the problem. The problem in your life is the guy you shave in the morning. That's your problem right there. Me too. But again, the only thing that stands in the way of a fully surrendered obedient life is self. And the only command that God gives with regard to self or the flesh is crucify it. When we talk about crucifying our flesh, the Bible commands us, crucify the flesh, right? We read that and we wrongly think of suicide. N not literal suicide, but spiritual suicide, right? Uh, the killing of our flesh. Yeah, that's right, okay? And yet suicide, if you think about it, by crucifixion is impossible. We read passages that talk about crucify the flesh. And we set about to crucify our flesh, to, to crucify self, that we can walk in the spirit, right? Not really understanding that you cannot, you cannot commit suicide through crucifixion. Somebody else has to crucify you, right? I was telling first service, I was watching an episode of the sitcom Raymond years ago. And this particular episode was all about his wife, Deborah, and her monthly PMS and how that she would turn into a completely different person. 
she would go from sweet Deborah to, you know, what is the Jekyll and Hyde? Who's the bad guy, Hyde? Uh, you know, anyways, she would turn into this really mean and, and vicious person yelling and screaming and everything else, you know. And every month this, this happened. And so at one point he's talking to his brother who's a cop and says to him, look, if you find me all chopped up in the freezer, don't believe the suicide note. There are some ways you can't commit suicide. Crucifixion is one of those ways. We can't crucify ourselves. Somebody else has to crucify us. Who is that someone else? God Almighty. In particular, the Holy Spirit. Hang on to that for a second. This is where faith comes in, guys. This is where faith comes in. That as Christians, we are in Christ, right? And as such, His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His victory is our victory. We didn't go through any of that, literally. But he did, and I'm in him. So everything that he did, went through, and how he conquered the grave, how he conquered death, is available to me because I'm in Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Romans 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament for spiritual victory and conquering over the flesh. I think it was chapter 4, but I could be wrong. It might be chapter 6, where a Greek word that's used of, of uh, an accounting term. Um, how is it uh, where you um, account, some, you, you put something to your account, okay, by faith, is the idea, spiritually. I think 11 times in chapter 4 or 6 or both, Paul uses a faith term of something that happened, Jesus did for real, but I benefit of by faith, benefit because of by faith. But Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, uh, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. That's an interesting Greek word, done away with. The Greek is um, rendered inoperative. Before we got saved, we were the slaves of sin. And pretty much, we didn't resist whatever the flesh wanted. The devil was pushing our buttons, no doubt. We just give it, gave in to. Now that we're saved, Jesus has moved in. The Spirit of God is within us, giving us a new nature, right? The sin nature has been rendered inoperative in the sense it's been short-circuited. It still can, we can still sin. We're just not the slaves of sin anymore, right? The idea being that, look... Before I got saved, it was like I was a slave of sin, and I just sinned because that was my nature. But now, now I'm a new creation. I can still sin. Shame on us when we do. We don't have to. We're free. Jesus Christ has rendered the old fallen nature, our flesh, inoperative. It can't control us anymore. But if you walk in the flesh... You will be controlled by the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you will be victorious in the Spirit. Whatever we give ourselves over to obey, that will become our master again, right? Turn to Galatians 2. I do want to read you this. You all know it. Galatians 2, let's focus on verse 20. Where Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's all about faith, guys. Whatever the Bible says is yours, it, it's yours and mine. But there's a lot of people that never appropriate the blessings and the promises of God because they just don't believe. I can't believe God will do that for me. Well then, according to your faith, let it be done unto you, Jesus said. The just don't just get saved by faith, the just live by faith. Right? Let me say it once more. It's impossible for you and me to enter into the full significance and understanding of all that happened in Gethsemane, but I think it was there that Jesus won the victory of Calvary. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that he purchased our salvation. He still had to go to the cross in a few hours. He still had to die and shed his blood because that's what actually redeemed us. That's what purchased our salvation. What I'm saying is, though, and hear me out, what happened in Gethsemane, I think, was the real fight. I said in the first service, I'm going to say something, and it's going to sound almost blasphemous. But hear me out. I think the war really was fought and won in Gethsemane. I think in a few hours as Jesus hung on that cross, it was almost anticlimactic. I'm not saying the pain wasn't incredible. I'm not saying it was, I'm not trying to minimize the cross. But if you notice, Satan came against Jesus in Gethsemane. He didn't, we don't find him anywhere near the cross. I think that the devil unleashed the full fury of hell against Christ in that garden. Because if he could get Jesus to think one thought contrary to his father, it would have blown his mission and our salvation would, have been, would not have been possible. And how did he win the victory of Gethsemane? He prayed and he surrendered. How do we win the victory over whatever it is you're going through? You pray and you surrender. Not my will, but your will be done. And you pray that every single day, every moment of every day that you have a decision to make. I think, that, and this is me, I could be wrong. I think that it was in Gethsemane that Jesus won the victory of Calvary. After he resisted the devil, God sent an angel to minister to him. And the next day he went to the cross, and we don't see anywhere where the devil, um, you know, attacked him on Calvary. It was almost like it was a done deal. The victory had been won. And now Jesus just lived out the reality of that victory. Guys, the victory over the flesh, over the world, over the has been won on Calvary. We have to appropriate that. We have to walk in that truth. It's already a done deal. But we appropriate it through our praying and surrendering and walking by faith, right? Again, the victory came in the surrendering of his will to the Father. And, and you know, there's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote, and then I'll bring this to a close. I I know we've been going for a little while. But C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, not about marriage, by the way, pointed out how that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Father, not my will, but your will, thy will be done. Lewis said, if a person refuses to turn their life over to God now and pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, Gethsemane was a place of crushing and surrender. 
If they don't pray as Jesus prayed right now on the earth, not my will, but thy will be done, but they instead say to God, not thy will, but my will be done, I'm not living for you. I don't care what Jesus did. I'm not turning control of my life over to anybody. Not even God. Not your will, my will is going to be important to me. Lewis said someday, if they live like that, someday they're going to stand before God and hear God say, not my will, but thy will be done. What do you mean? God will say to them, my will was that you spend eternity with me in heaven. I sent my son so that my will would benefit you forever, that you would be my child, living in my kingdom for eternity. That was my will. But you said on earth, not your will, my will be done. I'm going to do my thing. So now, heartbroken, God says, and now I'm going to honor your will for eternity. My will was to see you in heaven with me. But I can't. You rejected my son. You refused to bow the knee to him. And so not my will, but thy will be done. You wanted nothing to do with me on earth. You will have nothing to do with me throughout all eternity. That's something to think about. All right, let's wrap it up. Verse 44 of Matthew 26. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Guys, Jesus returns a third time from prayer and finds his disciples, and I think primarily Peter, James, and John, asleep once more. and says to them, get up, my betrayer is coming. Guys, those words were spoken by Jesus to his disciples. I think at the most critical time in human history, Jesus' crucifixion. And yet I believe he is saying similar words to his church today. I really do. I think, at least in my mind, you might disagree with me, but I, in my mind this has to be one of the most critical times in our nation's history, both politically and spiritually. And yet far too many Christians are asleep instead of praying. Too comfortable. The Apostle Paul admonished the Thessalonian Christians along these lines when he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The implication is that just because we are believers in Christ and we are in the light doesn't mean we can't fall asleep in the light. In fact, he goes on to tell us in Romans 13, that many have in fact gone to sleep in their relationship with God and are no longer being vigilant in looking for Jesus' return. And Paul tries to wake them up in Romans 13, verses 11 through 12, by saying these words, and do this knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Amen? The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Again, Paul said it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. If Paul could say those words 2,000 years ago, uh, how much closer is our salvation today? 
And I don't mean salvation in the sense of you getting saved from hell. I mean our salvation in the sense that God coming to rescue us before the tribulation of God is poured out in this world. It's what the Bible calls the blessed hope. It's the rapture of the church. How close is the rapture? Very close, right? All right, let's finish. Again, one more time, Matthew 26. Let's pick it up in verse 44. He left them, went away again, prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And guys, that leads us back to John 18. Turn there quickly. Because John 18 opens up with the words in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Starting next week, we will look at the second main point of these verses. We saw the Jesus' agony in the garden. Next week, we'll look at Jesus' arrest in the garden. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's a light unto our path, into our, uh, into our walk. But we must know it. We must walk in it. And Lord, give us grace that we would always be the people of God that honor you in all we do. Lord, that surrender our wills to you every day. That you would use us, Lord, in ways for your glory we can't even imagine. But Lord, it's all about what Jesus did, what he went through, and he's our example. Give us grace to follow in our Lord Jesus' footsteps. To always say, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. And to offer ourselves as living sacrifices that you might use us for your glory. We thank you. We ask you to keep blessing. These studies in your word, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.